Well, it is definitely a joy to worship with you all here this morning. I know that many of you probably have a big event that you are excited for and need to prepare for, uh, but I am thrilled that despite the excitement, you all are all here to worship the Lord first. May he be honored as we strive to give him our full attention uh, in worship. It has been a little while, but uh, back in November, we began our series in the One Another's. And my plan was to move on to look at the next one another, but I became convinced through my study that we ought to spend a little more time studying the foundations for the one another love that God calls us to have. So we're going to take the long road to the next two one another's on our list as we turn to the book of Romans. Book of Romans, we're looking at chapter 12 and then we'll start in verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, he writes this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word, for how it shows us your desire for us. For us to not just receive the gift of grace that you so freely give, but to also be influenced by it. To respond to it. And so we pray that, Lord, as we study your word this morning, you would be honored, you would be glorified as we see how you want us your people, to represent you here on this earth. So we pray that in everything, you would be pleased this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as many of you know, today is an important day for many San Francisco 49er fans as we eagerly anticipate another Super Bowl appearance, hoping that the Niners will be able to capture their sixth Super Bowl victory in franchise history. We've been fortunate in the Bay Area to witness six championships from our major sports teams in the last decade. And that has filled many of us with an appropriate love and pride for our teams. Because in our world, in our culture, championships talk. It invigorates a city. It invigorates a fan base. It gets us to think that we've done something together. Now, many of you who are not sports fans are probably baffled by what I just said. How can anyone identify themselves with a group of people that they have nothing to do with, uh, and say that they've taken a part of their victory. And even if fandom does not seem rational to you, and in a sense it's not, try to think of it in other ways. 
Do not parents invest themselves in the lives of their children? And when their children hit their, the milestones that they have set before them, whether as goals or hopes, don't they feel a sense of pride rightly when their child succeeds? And though a child's success is not necessarily a parent's success, although there are parents who try and live vicariously through their children, there is a sense of unity in the child's accomplishments. As mom and dad have invested much to make sure that their child is able to succeed in their endeavors. Success, no matter what form it takes, is one of those few things in life that absolutely changes the, the, the demeanor of those who experience it. Right? And in a way, in a similar way, those who experience God's love, they're forever changed in their attitude, their thoughts, and their conduct. Instead of boasting in our own success or in the success of a sports team, we boast in the Savior's success. His victory on the cross. And we might not necessarily go around with championship gear proclaiming that King Jesus won at the cross or have bumper stickers that say, Jesus won, repent and believe. The way that Christians respond to the message of the gospel in our day-to-day lives is the proof of the life-changing power of Jesus. Because of God's gracious love towards us, Jesus' righteousness is given to us so that we might be saved. And this changes everything for us. And yet sometimes, sometimes it can be hard for those spiritual realities, things that we don't necessarily see because they're not as tangible, to become actual realities in our lives. So in our text this morning, we're going to study how the reality of God's love ought to cause us to reasonably respond to the wonderful gift of salvation that God has granted to us. Not just for our own personal benefit, but for the benefit of the church. Paul's going to help us in this journey as he provides us with three reasonable responses to God's love that influence our love for one another. May God be honored as we strive to further understand the basis for our love for one another. And may we not just hear these words, but may we actively seek to live these things out as well. The first reasonable response to God's love that influences our love for one another is the personal response to God's love. The personal response to God's love. Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In the book of Romans, Paul writes to Roman Christians to provide them with clear instruction regarding the righteousness of God. Chapter 12 picks up on the wonder of God's glorious gift of righteousness to mankind and pushes Christians not just to marvel, at God's plan, but also to respond to God in worship. And Paul does this by urging or exhorting all the believers in Rome, and by extension, anyone who reads the book afterwards, to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. But how do we do this? Well, we are able to present this offering to God by the mercies of God. Paul knows that we are personally incapable through our sheer force of will to worship God in the way that we ought to worship him, which is why he appeals to Christians to consider God's great mercy, the mercy that he showed us to save us, and to lean upon those mercies to feel our worship. Now, what does that worship look like? 
Well, as Paul describes the act of worship that we are to give to God in response to the great mercies uh, that God has shown us, he says that we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So instead of a goat or a bull, as in the Old Testament, Paul tells believers that they are to present their bodies to God in worship. Why is this the case? Well, for one, the reason why we offer our bodies and not bulls and goats is because uh, because God, uh, in giving us Jesus Christ, he gave us the ultimate sacrifice that we needed to cover our sins. Those sacrifices of bulls and goats were for a temporary covering of sin. In Christ's sacrifice, that curse of sin has been dealt with completely, permanently. So that Christians are legally right with God. But we also have to grow in Christ-likeness afterwards. So when Paul, he mentions our bodies, he's not necessarily talking about our physical bodies, like one would expect for an Old Testament sacrifice, but rather he is talking about the entirety of who we are. Right? It's not just our physical bodies, but it's who we are on the inside too. When we worship God, we submit to him our minds, our emotions, and our wills. All of that is to be offered up or presented completely in submission to God. We will allow him to change our minds, to change the facts on the ground. The three descriptions of this whole body, whole life sacrifice as an act of worship to God is helpful. As living sacrifices, we are to offer up all of our lives to God. There is no part of our life that gets to be held back. All of our lives, every single aspect is given over to God. As holy sacrifices, we are to be, as Peter reminds us, holy as God is holy. So our lives must reflect God's righteous character in every single minute detail of our lives. The way that you think, and evaluate things, the way that you rule over your feelings with the truth, the way that you choose to respond to life situations. Everything needs to be done according to what the scriptures say. If our response of worship is to be acceptable to God, we should naturally strive to be pleasing to him by obeying him because it's in our love that we, and our thankfulness to, to God that we strive to obey. It's not out of just dull obligation, but it's out of love that we seek to please God. And Paul, he says that this submission, the submission to God of our whole lives, of our whole, uh, of our, of our whole being, is uh, our spiritual service of worship. And that word for spiritual, it can also be translated as logical or reasonable. So in response to the salvation that God graciously gives us, it's only reasonable, it's only rational for us to give ourselves wholly and completely to him. Who are we to accept the gracious gift of God for salvation, but impose our own conditions upon how we are to live our life in light of this new gift that God gives us? When we receive God's gracious gift of peace and righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, we, as spiritual enemies, surrendered ourselves to the rule of the king. And we were declared righteous and made a part of God's family. There were no conditions in our surrender to King Jesus that allow for us to retain our rights or any of our sinful tendencies. We didn't get to make any deals with him. 
We accepted his terms of surrender. Everything that we have is laid down before him. Many of us know that repentance from sin means a 180 degree turn away from sin. So that means that an abandonment of a sinful lifestyle will lead to the beginning of a new godly lifestyle. But let me ask you a question. Have you actually repented of your sins? Or have you merely said the words of repentance and adopted a lifestyle of the Christianity in the churches that you've been around? There's a difference. There's an absolute difference. If you've not actually repented of your sins, but instead have adopted a Christian lifestyle without true repentance from sin, pause and consider whether you are actually saved from your sins. You might say that you love Jesus. You might do Jesus-y things. You might go to church. But do you actually love God? Do you actually care about obeying all that he has commanded? If your life before Jesus is essentially no different than your life is now, except for now that you go to church and you do these Christian things, it's not unreasonable. It's not a bad thing for you to stop and consider whether you've actually surrendered your life to Christ. Do you actually love God? Do you actually want to be holy as he is holy? Or do you just want the benefits of being in Christian community? Do you just want the benefits of being around church people? And even if you are saved, you ought to stop and consider as well, are there any areas where you have sin hiding out in your life? Are there strongholds or hideouts for sin in your life where you know you need to work on some things but you don't actually take any practical steps to truly repent before God. Brothers and sisters, a lot of us will freely acknowledge that we need to work on some things. Right? We will. You do it, I do it. We all, we all acknowledge that we need to work on some things. But if you don't actually strive to put off sin And to put on righteousness. Your working out some things means nothing to God. It means absolutely nothing to God. A genuine love for God requires that we take personal responsibility for our sin. And that we strive to actively pursue obedience. We have to stop blaming society We have to stop blaming other people. Stop blaming your upbringing or your personality. If everything is turned over to God as a reasonable act of worship, then some of these things that we might think are a part of us or things that we can't change about us can actually be changed. And this this expectation for change in our lives, it's not irrational. It is hard. But it's not irrational. It's a reasonable act of worship to God. And it's for that reason Paul says in verse 2, 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This command for us not to be conformed to this world or age is a command from Paul to be on guard, to not allow for the thinking or values of this world to subtly or even overtly influence our way of thinking. It's for good reason that Paul would later write to the Corinthians and tell them that bad company corrupts good morals. If we allow for ungodly thinking and ungodly values to infiltrate our thinking and to shape our values without considering what God's word has to say, then our theology will become compromised and our actions will be too. Paul spends a lot of time in his epistles correcting theology precisely because values from outside of the church came into the church and shaped the way that the people of God conducted themselves. So instead of allowing for the world to subtly come in and tell us what is right, Christians are to be transformed or metamorphosized by the renewing of our mind. The transformation of our minds is a transformation from a mind that is associated with our lives before we became Christians to a mind that is consistent with the mind of Christ. If you've been saved, you should progressively start thinking more along the lines of how Christ would think. Your thoughts should be shaped by scriptural thoughts. The goal of the scriptures is to mature us so that we can become more like Christ. I know that seems hard, but the Holy Spirit is the one who enables that change. He is the one who allows for us to put aside the sin that so easily entangles us. To do the hard thing and put on the righteousness of Christ. This is the standard that we strive for to pursue. Again, the transformation of our thinking is not something that's easy to do on our own. It comes with time. It comes with dependence upon the Spirit. And it comes with an active pursuit of God's Word. You can't just pray for God to change our minds and wait for Him to spontaneously and magically make us more spiritual beings. It's not that you pray pray to God and you say, God, make me more like Jesus. And then, oh, I'm like Jesus. It doesn't work like that. We have to work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to grow. In order for us to be transformed in our minds, we must allow God's word to be the thing that influences our minds so that we are conformed to Christ in everything, which in turn affects the way that we think about things and the way that we feel about things and the way that we do things. If you pursue holiness as God intends, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit and disciplining yourself, actually ourselves, for godliness, then we will, as Paul says, prove what the will of God is. We'll demonstrate that God's will is not impossible to do, since God himself is the one who enables us to grow. What we view of as impossible is possible so long as we depend upon him. Remember how Paul confidently proclaimed to the Philippians that he was grateful for them because he knows that the work that God began in them he will be faithful, right? God himself will be faithful to complete. 
That's the confidence that you and I can have when we pray this prayer to the Lord to grow us to become more like Christ. He hears that prayer. He wants to answer that prayer for us to become more like Christ. He wants to answer that because that's his will for us. This is the will of God, your sanctification. He doesn't do that, though, by magically making you like Jesus. It requires work. That's why Paul says later on that he disciplines his body. He makes it his slave so that after he runs the race, he won't be disqualified. That's why he tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, we are saved by grace. Yes, we are saved by grace and only grace, not by works. But we are are also called to have personal responsibility to obey Christ and to become like Christ. It requires discipline. None of us are exempt. We must all grow in Christ's likeness. And we'll explore more of that as we move to our second reasonable response to God's love that influences our love for one another. And that is the interpersonal response to God's love. The interpersonal response to God's love. Verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So as a result of a Christian being transformed by the renewing of their mind, Paul gives us a practical example of what that transformation looks like. He clearly front loads God's grace. He's emphasizing God's grace because he wants everyone in the church to understand that the words that are coming next, they're not Paul's opinions. They're not just Paul's words, but they are divinely inspired words that demonstrate that there is a link between believing in Christ, repenting of sin, and God-honoring living amongst God's people. What does God-honoring living look like? Well, just as in Philippians 2, Paul tells everyone in the church, right? So everyone, that means everyone. Not just the leaders, not just the more serious Christians or the more spiritual Christians, but every single person in the church. But they are not to think more highly of himself or herself than they ought to think. Why is it that that the result of a transformed mind is not thinking as highly of ourselves than we ought to? Or than we actually do? Well, think about our natural inclination. From birth, we're all intensely focused on ourselves. When we have siblings, that's when it gets challenged, right? Or playmates, that's when it gets challenged because we have to learn how to share and be selfless. And even if we've been taught how to share and to think of others in our upbringing, we still think of ourselves first and foremost. When we're annoyed or when we're impatient, Do we not feel those emotions because something is not going according to our plans or preferences? When we feel dissatisfied with our place in life or the condition of our health, there is an aspect of those feelings that could stem from a belief that we either deserve more or need more for our lives. We deserve better. Why am I suffering like this? If we get left out of a specific invitation for a group outing or are forgotten, don't we at times feel hurt or insulted that we were not thought of as more important or as higher by others? 
And even in those instances, when we feel hurt by someone's unlovingness towards us, whether that feeling is legitimate because of sin committed against us or just a perceived slight, why is it that you feel hurt? Is it not because you consider yourself worthy of more love or more esteem? We love ourselves. We love ourselves a lot. And you know, I'm not trying to overlook other people's sins. If they're sinning against you, that is wrong before God. He does care about that too. But my overall point, or my overall point is that we love ourselves. And that love for ourselves can be found in every single aspect of our lives. There certainly is a sense where uh, there is a, a love for self that is righteous, right? God wants for us to love uh, ourselves enough where we want to be holy, where we want to turn away from our sins. That is a love for self that God wants us to have. However, the line between God-glorifying love for self and sinful love for self is so razor thin, we cross it almost every single time. And because we tend to love ourselves in a sinful manner more often than not, Paul tells everyone in the church that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Instead, Paul tells us that we are to think as to have sound judgment. We are to think as to have sound judgment. And what does that mean? Well, remember the context. Paul is talking about how everyone in the church is not to think more highly of himself or herself than he ought to. So sound judgment here does not refer to making good choices. It refers to a proper estimation of oneself according to God's standards, according to God's view of us. And so we must ask the question, do we think of ourselves rightly? And what I mean by this is, does your view of yourself line up with what God thinks of you? Or do you think of yourself as more important than you actually are? Those of you who are here at this church, who teach, you lead a Bible study, you disciple, you serve, do you have a proper view of yourself? Or do you think of yourself as a key cog in the church who cannot be replaced? Or that you're fulfilling a function in this church that if you're not here, the church falls apart? Paul explains that a result of being transformed by the renewing of our minds starts with a consideration of ourselves according to how God has made us and what he has given us. And should we have a proper view of ourselves before God, we'll be more humble. We'll be more grateful for his mercy. We'll function more properly within the body of Christ, of whom we are all a part. Verses 4 to 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We understand that every single member of the church makes up a part of the body of Christ. We understand that together as a church, when we are working together, we are a more complete picture of Jesus to those who are within our church and to those who are outside our church as well. We understand that. However, if we are one body, if we all fulfill certain functions within the body, and are supposed to together represent Christ. Why is it, why is it, that at times we are highly critical of the church and the people in it? Why is it that we play the comparison game with other churches or ministries that we've been a part of in the past? 
I'm not posing this question to you to be mean or to be spiteful or to reject any kind of constructive feedback or rightful criticism that we uh, ought to have as we evaluate our ministries. I'm not, I'm not uh, striking out against that. But I pose this question to us to consider whether we have a view of the body of Christ that properly honors and loves the people God has given us in our local body. It's easy for us to make fun of each other. It's easy for us to criticize one another. It's easy for us to be discontent and to long for the wonderful days of college ministry that we've experienced or the other other days of church that we've experienced. It's easy for us to long for those things. But do we appreciate the body of Christ that we're a part of now? Do we love one another? Each local church body that exists around the world has sovereignly received from God its members. And that means that each local body has been given, each individual, with all their quirks, with all their personality traits, with all their preferences, with all their strengths, with all their weaknesses, and all their life problems for a reason. None of these things nor the people who display these things should be despised. God has given us those in our midst for the good and sanctification for the entire church. I had an opportunity to be um, away in Kentucky for school to learn a little bit more about biblical counseling. And one of the things that my professor mentioned that was really instructive and humbling was how when he's counseling, He's not looking and judging at his counselees and and thinking about them in terms of, man, what a mess you are. But he's thinking of them in terms of, what is God trying to teach me? What do I need to hear from God that I've forgotten? He's mentioned that in his marriage counseling, when he's asking husbands and wives, what are the issues between them? And he hears some of the hurtful things that the husband says, and he's providing counsel from the scriptures, He's looking at himself and he's evaluating himself and he's thinking, yeah, I said that to my wife yesterday. Right? Or I've had that attitude towards my wife before. So you see, when we look at other people in the church, when we look at their problems, we look at the personality traits that they have, Don't look at them as problems. Don't look at them as people that you wish would just go to another church so you don't have to deal with them. That's the easy thing to do. But instead, we ought to be considering, we ought to be thinking, what is God trying to teach me? How is God trying to grow me in my love for someone else? If we are all part of the body of Christ, if we are all connected to one another through Christ and in Christ, we must love one another, flaws and all. And that's love for one another. Not only means that we care for one another in a manner um, that is just tolerable, it means that we must love one another in a way that is more consistent with 1 Corinthians 13. Do we hope and assume the best in one another? Are we patient towards one another? Are we willing to lovingly endure inadvertent sins? And do we when we're sinned against, lovingly confront to restore sinning brothers or sisters to right fellowship with God when love can no longer cover the offenses. 
Of course, we could explore more of that in another sermon. But the point I'm driving at here is that if is that as that we as a church, if we truly have repented, if we've truly been transformed in our minds, transformed in our thinking, then we ought to strive to make sure that we have a loving disposition to the people in God's church and that we strive to edify rather than to tear down. Even if the church does not fit our ideal picture of what church ought to look like, we are one body. We are members of one another. God gave us the individual members of this church at this period of time for a specific reason. And so if we've truly been saved, if we truly love God, our thoughts regarding ourselves and those God has placed in our lives must be aligned with the way that God thinks of us. But that's not all. In addition to thinking rightly about ourselves and those God has placed in our lives, we as a church body must respond together to God's love, which leads us to the third reasonable response to God's love that influences our love for one another, and that is the church-wide response to God's love. The church-wide response to God's love. Verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who serves, or he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We could look at the gifts for a long time, right? We have an entire class dedicated to that, to that in our um, life of church, in our church, in our class of church life um, required for membership. We have an entire class dedicated to that, and even that probably could spend more time in the gifts. What we do know is that there are a lot of gifts listed in the scriptures. There are at least four different passages that talk about gifts, and some of those gifts are different, and these. Uh, some of those uh, gifts on those lists are different. And the lists don't match because um, because the apostles decided that they were going to change their mind as to what the gifts are. Right? That's not the reason why the, 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 the gifts on the list differ. These lists given to us in Scripture are not meant to be exhaustive of all the different ways that God has gifted his people to serve one another. But it's meant to show the great diversity of the gifts that God has given As we see in verse 6, the gifts that each person has in each church differs according to the grace given to us, right? So that diversity is found in the church. It's not for hoarding. It's not for collecting. It's not for boasting over other churches, but they're given to us to use in order to serve the body. Paul's logic is as follows. If we have been saved from our sins and love God, then we are to present the entirety of our lives to God in worship. If we submit every aspect of our lives to God in worship, then we're going to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. We're going to have a proper view of ourselves and a proper view of the church body that we're a part of. And when we do that, when we have a proper view of ourselves and the church body, we will use the gifts that we all have collectively by, uh, that has been grace given to us by God to fulfill our function in the body in the area that we're in at this time. The use of our gifts is not for us to, um, to, to lord over others. Right? It's not meant to be the foundation for your identity in the church. It's not meant to solely set the, turn, the, the, the tone for how we're going to serve in the church. Right? If you're gifted in music, 
it doesn't mean that the only ministry that you can possibly take a part of in this church is music ministry and worship music ministry. You can serve in other ways too. If if your gift is teaching, it doesn't mean that you're not also responsible for picking up after yourself when you make a mess. We're all responsible for everything. To serve in all respects, all regards. Many people are given a number of spiritual gifts by God so that we can meet the many needs of the church at this present time. Here at this church, about about 50%, so 48% of the body is serving, is is, is considered a ministry leader. That's great. That's exciting. And yet, and yet, sometimes we're wondering, why is it that it doesn't seem like we have time for one another? Why is it that um, at times we're, we're lagging in certain aspects of ministry? Have you considered how busy the, the, those ministry leaders are? A lot of our ministry leaders, as Howard alluded to earlier, they're wearing three to four different hats. They're serving in multiple different ministries. And God has given these ministry leaders to us to serve in these areas. And that's great. But it also means that at times, because they're serving to meet the needs of the church, they can't always do what you would want them to do for you. Consider those who serve. They have jobs too. They have family obligations too. And any other time that they have left, they give to the church. We ought to give thanks to God for them. We ought to hold them in higher esteem. Rather than lay more expectations on them. Demand more of their times. Sure, some of us could be more efficient. Some of us could serve more diligently and more faithfully. We have to be careful not to be quick in our judgments regarding how other people use their time. Would it not be wicked to say that someone is not faithful because they don't look like someone else in the church when we have not considered the fact that they might be caring for an elderly, ailing parent? That's wicked. It's ungracious. It's unloving. It doesn't belong to the church. God has granted many of our members multiple gifts. And while we are far from a perfect church, okay, I know that. I acknowledge that. I'm part of the problem. While we might not operate with optimal efficiency, while we might not be excellent in every single thing that we do, even though we strive for it, we have been given the particular members that we have to help us serve the church body and those around us according to our needs now. Maybe some of what we're doing is laying the groundwork for further faithfulness later down the road. But we have to be very careful of playing the comparison game with other churches and other ministries. If we understand that God has sovereignly given us a specific group of people for a specific time and a specific task in this place. And we must strive to be faithful to accomplish that mission with the gifts that he has given us 
rather than envy other churches with other people who have more giftedness than us or more free time to serve. Of course, this doesn't mean that we don't strive to improve and grow in excellence. We, we want to grow in excellence. We want to grow in our ability to serve one another well. But we really need to be asking ourselves whether we're being faithful with what God has given us. If we can say in good conscience that we are giving the most that we can to God, that we're being faithful with the time that's been given, that we are redeeming this, the time, then we can be confident that we are honoring the Lord in everything. But if we can't answer that, that, that evaluation question, well, then we do need to grow. We do need to take a step back and, and rightfully criticize, rightfully um, evaluate what we're doing and improve. Like the parable of the rich man with the talents in Matthew 25, we have to consider whether we are making the most of the gifts that God has given to us to steward. Are we making the most of it? Are we faithful? Are we advancing God's kingdom in God's timing, in God's way here at this church? In our lives? We have to be, make sure that we're faithful with what we've been given before we can look at other ministries and try and incorporate or adopt some of the things that they do. We want to make sure that we give full effort, not half effort, to do all to the glory of God with what we've been given. We see that this expectation of church-wide response, of church-wide stewardship to the giftedness that God has given us um, in this list of gifts, he says, Paul says that we're to exercising, we're to exercise them accordingly to what we've been given, right? So, um, for instance, this list is a, just a list of examples. So if you um, have the gift of prophecy, which is, gener- is the general word for forth-telling. It's not telling the future, right, but telling what God's word has said. In a sense, it's kind of like what preaching is. Right? Are you doing that according to the gift that God has given you? Are you doing that faithfully according to how you've been trained? If you are gifted in serving, that's the, it's a very general word. It's the word where we get the word deacon. Are we exercising our service, our ability to serve in whatever capacity it is, as faithfully as we can, as skillfully as we can? If you are a gifted teacher in your teaching, no matter whether it's in Sunday school setting, a midweek setting, a one-on-one setting, if you're a gifted teacher, are you making sure that you are giving proper attention to your teaching? so that you can give a good account before God that you've been faithful with your gift? Or are you kind of putting it off last minute and just cobbling stuff together from your notes that you've had from years ago? Are you faithful? The same can be said for those who have been given the gift of exhortation. If If you are gifted in exhortation, are you exhorting others like you ought to? Are you... Are you... Providing wisdom, encouragement, comfort, correction to the people that God brings into your life in a way that pleases him. Are you speaking the truth in love? Or are you saying, I'm giving an exhortation, so I'm just going to slap you upside the head to yak right? That's not right either. For those who have the spiritual gift 
of making money. And yes, God has given people in the church the spiritual gift of making money. Are you giving the most? Are you, are you giving well? You don't have to give all that you got, but are you giving well? Are you giving intentionally? Are you giving humbly? Or are you like Ananias and Sapphira? You're just trying to have a good image in your giving. If you've been gifted in the gift of leadership, you have leadership skills, are you using those gifts with diligence to serve God? Or are you lazy? Or worse, using those leadership skills exercising them according to the world rather than according to God. There are, of course, other gifts that can be spoken of here, but again, Paul's purpose is not to give a comprehensive list of gifts, but to show the diversity of gifts that God has given his people for the mutual edification of the body and to exhort us. If you have a gift, use it according to the measure that God has given you. Be a faithful steward of what God has given you. As a church, the only proper response to being shown the mercy of God is a faithful stewardship of the gifts given to us as we strive to think of ourselves and the rest of the people in the church as God thinks of us. If we truly love God, we're going to renew our thinking. We're no longer going to think of ourselves as most important. Instead of taking, instead of asking how we can benefit, or having thoughts that dishonor God and his people, will we be people who give of our time, our love, and our resources? Will we love the church so that we can together spur each other on towards love and good deeds to glorify God as we proclaim the wonderful power of the gospel as a church? This morning... Our examination of Romans 12 demonstrated how Christians ought to respond to the love of God. Love for God properly leads to a change in the way that we think. Not just about life, not just about politics and whatnot, but foundationally the way that we think about ourselves and other people in the church. That consequently results in a change in the way that People in the church think about one another and how the church functions. Not just for the body of Christ that meets within these four walls, but also as a testimony to those who are outside the church of the great power of the gospel. In view of God's wonderful mercies to us, how can we who have experienced this amazing grace remain relatively unchanged from our lives before we were saved? How can we who've experienced the great mercies of God despise the people of God? Can't. Change will be slow. It's hard to love other people. We're all sinners. We all sin against one another. But if we're positive, if we've been made thankful to God for everything that he's given us. How can we afford to be lax in the seriousness in which we pursue becoming more like Christ?
We need to stop just working on things and actually apply the scriptures to our lives. Later this afternoon, if that big game turns out the way that many of us want it to, we're going to act differently, right? Our demeanor is going to be different. Our attitudes are going to be different. That team that we've watched flounder for many, many years, we're going to think of them differently than we have in those past years. Why? Because we've had success. If you as parents, you're able to see your children have success, will not your demeanor change toward them? Will you not be proud of them? Will not your view of their abilities change? Invariably it will. And the same must be said for Christians who have experienced God's mercy. We cannot remain as we were. We must change in our estimation of ourselves so that we can truly love God and love his people in the way that pleases him and that proves that his plans are indeed good, acceptable, perfect. One another love is ultimately built upon the foundation of a love for God that is fueled by a passionate desire to be more like Jesus in everything. So we have to stop just saying we want to be like Jesus and we actually have to be like Jesus. May our love for one another increase as we grow more in our love for for God and for his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are so merciful to us. We don't always act as we ought to. We don't always love as we ought to. And yet you still love us the same. You continually show us grace. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to be gracious towards others. That you would help us to consider ourselves as you consider us. Help us, Lord, not to be cold-hearted, not to be complacent to the truths of the gospel. But help us, Lord, strive to apply your word to our lives. Help us not to get caught up with the deeds of the day or the tasks of the day so that sanctification becomes a, well, if I get around to it type of activity. May we pursue sanctification with all vigor. May we desire to be more like Christ with all passion, with all energy, knowing that the days are short, the time is evil, and we must redeem it. Father, we pray that you would make us more like Jesus. Help us to love your church, to love one another, so that you truly can be shown as glorious. We eagerly anticipate for the day when we get to go home to be with you, when all sin is dealt with. But until that day, may we not lack in resolve to grow in Christ's likeness and love for one another. Help us, we pray, in your son's name. Amen. Thank you so much for your attention. You're dismissed.